Well, it's great to be with you all for worship. As we've been saying, it's the start of Advent today. Uh, looking forward to the birth of our Lord Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing to be able to hope, even in these times. If you're visiting, uh, we're so thankful that you're here. I have some special guests today, uh, Chris and, and Gina. Gina is a family friend. I grew up with her older brother, so we've known each other for a while. And, uh, and Chris, of course, I met at a bachelor party this year. And they're, they're visiting from the DMV, D.C., Maryland, Virginia. So please welcome them if you can. They're my guests. We're in a series right now asking, what does it mean to be empowered by Jesus to be his disciples? And we're looking at Matthew 8 through 10, where Jesus heals and then teaches what it means to be a disciple. Uh, heals and teaches. And that's the gospel dynamic, right? Receiving and following at the same time. Last week, Elder Matt brought us a powerful word on mercy. Jesus teaching that mercy is a crucial aspect of discipleship. Uh, mercy toward the least of these, mercy toward each other, and toward ourselves in Christ. Well, today we arrive at the last set of Jesus' healings in this section in Matthew. Let me read our text for us, and then we'll get into it. Matthew 9, 18 through 34. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and, seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear God, we've been learning about what it means to receive from and follow you as disciples. 
speak to us once again about who Jesus is in his name. Amen. When I was a senior in high school, I went on a trip to a Delaware beach town with my friends. One of them had a family home out there, so we stayed at their place for a weekend. And while we were there, we found out that there was a local dodgeball tournament scheduled at a gym near us, and we had nothing else to do. It was just five or six of us, so we decided that we would enter as a team. And we practiced all day with some soccer balls and things down in the basement. And for some reason, we got creative and decided that our strategy was going to be cartwheels. Uh, we wanted to catch the other teams off guard, so we promised each other that we would master our cartwheels to dodge their attacks. And so for hours, we practiced doing that as our game plan. The following night, we got to the gym and we were shocked because what we thought was just a community dodgeball activity was actually a heavy-duty, almost professional dodgeball enthusiast club. Uh, there were these buff dudes with protective gear screaming and getting pumped, uh, and we just had some t-shirts on. Well, well, the first team we got matched up with, they were tough, but somehow we beat them and we advanced. But the next team was pretty much impossible. They were giants. We survived them for a couple of minutes, and then one by one, we got knocked out pretty powerfully. But at one point in the game, it was their whole team against one of our guys, Barry. The rest of us were on the sidelines watching. And Barry, the smallest guy on our team, just stood there staring at the opponents. He was empty-handed, and the other guys were fully armed. And I still remember this moment vividly. It was like slow motion. The opponents launched their attack with brutal force all at the same time toward Barry. And Barry just turned and looked into our eyes. And he went into the most beautiful cartwheel I'd ever seen. Perfect circle across the gym floor. And he dodged every ball. And, and, and we jumped up and down almost crying with joy. And of course, in the next few minutes, he got pelted and, and we, we lost and came home. Uh, but in that moment, Barry knew he was going to lose and he could have given up. But instead, he, re he decided to remember us and our team's promise to each other. He understood his assignment with his faithful cartwheel. Today, we're asking the question, what does it mean to receive Jesus as a faithful friend? How can we know him as faithful to us? Three points. Number one, accepting his faithfulness. Number two, trusting his faithfulness. And number three, delivered by his faithfulness. First, accepting his faithfulness. So at the beginning of our text, Matthew combines two of Jesus' miracles in the same storyline. And in those miracles, we see two examples of human weakness. Uh, the first example of human weakness we see is in the woman who's been experiencing 12 years of bleeding. Now, we don't know ex what exactly she was suffering from, but we know that this was an ongoing, long-term issue, which probably means she had difficulty socializing with people. Also, her condition involved bleeding, uh, so she was considered unclean in the temple, according to the law of Moses. So, so just like the leper we saw a few weeks ago, there was, here was another person who was not able to worship freely in the community. Uh, 
Well, Matthew includes a detail here that gives us a glimpse into this woman's heart. It says in verse 21, she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, this shows us a few things. Uh, First, it shows us that she was desperate. Uh, She knew that she needed help. Second, it shows us that at the same time, she didn't want to be seen. Uh, She just wanted to quietly get her healing and leave. And third, it shows us that she had this superstitious view of Jesus. She thought that if she just touched his clothes, she would absorb some magical power, and uh, that would be that. So in other words, this is a person who's in need, but wants to get some quick fix without being seen and she wants to keep a distance. That's one example of human weakness that Matthew shows us here. We'll come back to that. The second example of human weakness we see is when Jesus goes to the house of this ruler whose daughter has just died. When he arrives, there are all these mourners who are playing music and weeping. They've already accepted that this girl is dead. See, back in the day when somebody died, they would gather a whole crowd to officially grieve together. And Jesus says to this crowd, go away, she's not dead, but sleeping. And here's where the human weakness comes in. In verse 24, it says, they laughed at him. They laughed because they were thinking with their own logic. Uh, Some of them were professional mourners, hired for that occasion. So they knew all about death, and they knew how to handle it. They had it all figured out. And so when Jesus throws a curveball and says, this girl is not dead, They laugh at him. They think he's foolish. Both the bleeding woman and the laughing crowd display human weakness because both of them were trying to be their own saviors. Both of them were trying to control their futures on their own. The woman wanted to hide and just absorb Jesus' power from afar. And the crowd was logical. Uh, They were going to play their instruments, do their thing, and go home. Both self-reliant. But look at Jesus' response to each of them. To the woman, he says three things. First, he says, take heart. Take heart in your shame. You don't want to be seen because you're afraid of being hurt or rejected or disappointed. But I see you, and I'm not going to abandon you. See, See, he could have kept on moving, but he stopped to make sure that this woman was affirmed. And then he says, daughter, showing that she's not only seen, but she's clean. No matter what the temple restrictions might say about her, she's a child of God. And finally, your faith has made you well. She had this messed up, superstitious faith. She didn't even have the right theology of faith, but he wants to tell her, that because her faith was in Jesus, even her messed up faith is good faith. So to this first human weakness of hiding from a distance, Jesus responds with his presence. And then to the laughing crowd, what does he do? He ignores their laughter, and he raises this girl from the dead, something that no human being could logically understand. And he shows the crowd that no matter how well you think you figured it out, God is so much greater than you could grasp. Let me pause there. Family of God, we just saw two ways 
in which we could be our own savior. Which one are you? Are you the person who's so filled with self-doubt that you're always controlling how much you're seen? Are you trying to live your Christian life from a distance, afraid to reveal to God and to trusted people who you really are? You know you need help, but you're not fully able to enjoy God's help because you're not showing yourself to him and you're receiving his forgiveness from afar. Is that you? And do you know that that's still a way of saving yourself? That you keeping a distance is actually your sense of control? Child of God, if you're trapped in that, you're never going to know what it feels like when Jesus sees what you don't want him to see, and he still says, I love you. You'll never fully hear that from him or from his community. Or are you the other kind, the kind that laughs at Jesus? Uh, maybe not literally, but with your actions. You have your whole life planned out, trying to keep your relationships and schedule and tasks within your grasp. You know he's there, but realistically, that's New York people's favorite word, realistically, you want some safeguards in place. And the idea of trusting Jesus is a little impractical for you. Uh, is that you? Do you know that you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow? You don't even know what's going to happen in the next hour. God is sovereignly holding the universe with the word of his power, and you think you can maintain your life without him. Family of God, can you start accepting that God is actually faithful over you? And he's actually in control of your salvation and healing and your future, watching over your steps, growing you, and providing people in your life, even when you don't have it all together, can you start accepting that that's a real thing, the faithfulness of God? Amy and I had the privilege of watching soccer. Is Aaron back? Aaron Yang? He's not back yet, right? I don't think so. Well, uh, that was her dog, and we watched soccer for about 10 days, and we fell in love with him, of course, and... Usually, uh, when I took him out on walks, he was pretty obedient, explored, peed, pooped, and came home. It was awesome. Uh, but there were times when Saka got hyper-focused on a particular scent in Flushing, and he moved aggressively in that direction, farther away from my apartment. And I knew that there was nothing for him there except garbage. And if he kept going, he would get cold and tired, so I would pull him, but he wouldn't budge. And eventually, I had to take out a little treat, and when he saw the treat, his distractions faded out, and he became the most well-behaved creature I'd ever seen all the way home. And I kept thinking, this is not even my dog, and I'm spending this much energy on this thing, thinking ahead, watching what he eats, helping him focus, and doing all this when he couldn't think for himself. If that's the relationship between a dog-sitter and a dog. How much more intimate and powerful is God's heart for you? He has the ultimate perspective on your life, and he's spending all his energy to take care of you. But more than that, he's not just your caretaker. He's your, he's your heavenly father, a parent. Some of you know how this feels, a parent deeply invested in his child's future. Will you repent 
of your self-reliance? And will you accept that Jesus is actually watching over you? That was accepting his faithfulness. Second, trusting his faithfulness. So Jesus moves on and he meets two blind men. Now, whenever we see blind people in a gospel story, usually the writer wants us to take sight as a double meaning. Uh, There's literal sight, seeing with your eyes, but then there's spiritual sight, seeing with your heart. And in some ways, even though these men were blind, they could see more clearly than a lot of the Pharisees around them. And we know that through how they address Jesus. They say, have mercy on us, son of David. When they say, have mercy on us, they're saying, we have nothing but you right now. Help us. That's their posture. But more than that, they weren't just saying, have mercy on us on any, to anybody. Somehow, they identified the person they were talking to was the son of David. The phrase son of David in Matthew is used to describe the Messiah. Uh, In other words, these men were saying, help us because you are the Messiah. And Jesus clarifies and asks them, do you believe that I am able to do this? He's emphasizing their faith in a person and they respond, yes, Lord. And Jesus opens their eyes. I remember reading an article some years ago from a counseling website. The title was, The Art of Not Being Surprised. And it was describing how a counselor establishes trust with a client. And the author was making the point that there's something important about not being shocked when somebody shares their struggle with you. Uh, Imagine a friend comes up to you and they want to be vulnerable, and so they share timidly. Uh, I, I, uh, I, uh, I, uh, I struggle with, um, I struggle with addiction. And you respond by saying, oh, that's terrible, man. I'm sorry about that. How can I help you? Is there, is there a way I could pray for you about that? At that point, you've already lost that person. Uh, they've risked stepping into a delicate space, showing you a shameful part of them, and by you being surprised, you've put a magnifying glass on their brokenness and made them feel worse. A better response, the author says, might be something like, okay, uh, thank you for letting me into that. How do you feel now that you've shared that with me? Something like that to direct the person away from their shame and reassure them that you're still there in front of them. A lot of times when we say we trust God, it feels a little abstract, right? If we think of trust as a concept, it's hard to know how to do that practically. But if we bring it down, how do you establish trust with a person? How does somebody gain your trust? And oftentimes the answer is building. We build our trust over time. And it's the same way with Jesus. We we might not be able to grasp his faithfulness in this moment, but what would it mean for you and me to keep spending intentional time with him and his people? What would it look like for you to purposely allocate a portion of your schedule to prayer, hearing from his word, and talking to community about him in their lives? What would it look like to keep these regular practices? Sometimes it's inefficient. Uh, 
fruitless, it feels like. But it's in those things that the Holy Spirit makes you sensitive to Jesus, getting reminded of his grace. Man, I just messed up this morning. Let me go to the word and he says he forgives me. Getting reminded of his wisdom, his law, his promises. And it makes you tender, knowing that he won't ever be surprised by you. And he's not surprised by your future. He knows exactly where you're going and who you are. That's building trust over time. Will you consider what it means to build that surrendering trust in your practices? That's trusting in his faithfulness. And lastly, delivered by his faithfulness. Look at this last miracle. It's a demon oppression. But here, Matthew doesn't include any interaction from Jesus. It just says, when the demon had been cast out, the mute man who couldn't speak before spoke. And the verse I want to focus on is the end of 33. It says, the crowds marveled, saying, there was, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Now, this is significant in Matthew because Matthew's focused on his Jewish audience. Uh, he was writing this story to people who knew their history. And him highlighting that they've never seen anything like this in Israel points to the fact that there were prophets, priests, magicians, and even false teachers who couldn't do what Jesus just did. Nobody could directly cast out the enemy of God like Jesus just did. In the beginning of the book of Matthew, we see Jesus' genealogy. Uh, which is his family history. And it starts with Abraham. In Genesis 15, thousands of years before our passage, God makes a promise with Abraham. He says he will give Abraham's seed the promised land. And Abraham says, how do I know you're going to give that to me? And God makes Abraham pass through the pieces of sacrificial animals, saying, I promise with blood that your seed will receive the land. And later we find out that Abraham's seed was actually his son Isaac, and Isaac's descendants do receive Canaan, the promised land. But beyond that, we now know that God was pointing to something else when he was talking about the seed. In Matthew, we see that the true seed of Abraham that God promised was the Messiah, and that Messiah was his own son, Jesus. God kept his promise to give his people the promised land by blood, and that blood was shed by his own son on the cross. I share that history because I want to remind you, church, that God's faithfulness to you is not just about you. God's faithfulness is about him being faithful to himself and his redemptive promises of bringing people home, taking care of you, and your future is directly connected to his own character since ancient times. And he will follow through for you because he'll always follow through on himself. No other thing is going to commit to you like that. So many times we believe that something else is going to do it for us. Uh, a financial status, image, safety is going to be more faithful to us than God. But look at how the demon-oppressed man was mute. When idols or the enemy take hold of your soul, you lose your voice. You get swept away by whatever's influencing you. 
You don't have the ability to be yourself. If it's money, you get carried away by your accounts, constantly checking what you have. If it's people, you're thinking about how others see you. Whatever it is, when something other than God captures you, you lose yourself. Idols will use and abuse you, and you're going to find out sooner or later that it's driving you to exhaustion. The crowd said, we've never seen anything that can silence oppression and give voice to people like this. God's faithfulness to you is the only solid ground you could stand on since ancient times, according to his own character. And only he silences all the lies about you and your life. Will you stay close to that? Let me close with the last verse of a famous hymn called How Firm a Foundation. The word repose here means rest, right? It's an older word. This is what this hymn declares God is saying to us. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul Though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.